From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, and I'm opposed to Justin Ling. I'm Justin Ling in Toronto, and I'm opposed to Jen Gerson. Today, me and Jen are going to get into a bloody knife fight cage match over the most viscerally divisive issue in Canadian politics, Donald Trump and steel. Then we'll dive headlong into the dark, slimy recesses of the federal budget and take a look at Big Tobacco's last stand. Lastly, everybody is suddenly an expert on sick separatism. But according to the guy I'm going to talk to, they are decades out of date on this. But before we get started, a big thanks to our sponsor, FreshBooks, the cloud accounting software that I have launched into my freelancing career with. It saves freelance workers like me two days a month in paperwork and gets us paid up to five days faster. For your 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo, O-P-P-O, in how did you hear about us section. And you should really definitely do this because I get uh, my, my accounting software comped the longer that they're our sponsors, and I really like having them as our sponsors. So uh, please help us to continue the sponsorship drive and Jen Gerson's reign of graft. <laughs> the reign of graft. Donald Trump is picking on us again. Late last week, the U.S. president announced that he would be implementing a 25% tariff on steel and a 10% tariff on aluminum. As per usual, the proposal sounded like some nutty, off-the-cuff statement said by your drunken uncle at the Easter table, so there are no specific details about it, including whether or not Canada will be exempt from the tariff, as it was under previous U.S. presidential administrations. What we do know is that Justin's attempts to explain this issue and stand up to the American president have been bad. So bad. Aluminum ingots produced in Canada are used uh, by American manufacturers to, uh, uh, in a broad range of things. Uh, we uh, import uh, more steel uh, than the Americans uh, uh, ex- uh, import. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, we uh, have a significant trade surplus. Uh, the Americans have a tra- significant trade surplus with us on steel, uh, which, mean, which means uh, we buy steel from them, they buy steel from us. Oof. <laughs> Watching your facial expressions while you watch that was very entertaining for me. It was like you know when you know when you like you you see those YouTube videos of seeing other people watch Goatsy for the first time. That's that's almost <laughs> it wasn't like that at all, but it was it was the political equivalent of that. So it, Justin, you're like uh, a a giant bear, almost partisan liberal hack. You want to try to defend that one? Oh God, not even remotely. I mean, listen, I, yes, fine. You know what? The prime minister's jet lagged. He's been in India for the past seemingly forever. Uh, You know, (laughs) no, but I mean, he's, I mean, the things he's trying to pull out of his brain are correct. You know, the U.S. does have a trade surplus with Canada when it comes to steel. This whole idea behind steel tariffs has got to be one of the most idiotic ideas uh, that Donald Trump has actually gone forward with, aside from some of the crazy racist stuff. So, you know, I, I get what the prime minister was trying to say. Watching him fail to say it, yes, is kind of like having your fingernails removed. But the prime minister uh, has done a relatively good job of lobbying the Trump administration on economic issues thus far. And, you know, I think one totally flubbed press conference aside, 
I don't know that we can necessarily give him failing grades, given that thus far we've been spared the rod on a whole bunch of economic and trade issues. And this is probably the first huge irritant um, that, you know, is actually going to be real danger to us. Oh, man, man, I got I got to start. Firstly, so the answer is yes. Yes, you are going to defend Justin Trudeau on that one. Um, okay. Fine. So, I mean, I think that the first thing to keep in mind is yes, absolutely. The steel tariff is silly, regressive, stupid, not least of which because... You know, we actually have a very integrated market on steel. So a lot of the steel that America is exporting to the Canada and that Canada is then exported to the U.S. is all sort of connected into uh, various manufacturing cycles that is going to essentially do nothing more than increase the cost of consumer goods for people in the U.S., and potentially harm us and our exports, but in a way that you know we're it's going to force us to retaliate by increasing the cost of our exports to the Americans. And that well, and most, most notably fault. though, but it's going to. But, 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 no, but, no, but no, but here's here's where I'm going to disagree with you because I mean this idea that Canada has been spared the rod on trade I think is demonstrably false. When Donald Trump took power and he was talking about you know how NAFTA is a bad deal for everybody and all these you know Mexican rapists were coming up and not sending their bad people and then they're going to build a wall and all these nutty nutty proposals. There was an assumption, I think, in Canada and a complacency in Canada that in attacking trade, Donald Trump was actually attacking the Mexicans and that, you know, how should Canada handle this? Well, we should basically just keep our head down and, and, and do our best to lobby. But really, I mean, he's not coming after us. Right. And yet since Donald Trump's been elected from attacks, you know, verbal attacks to the oil and gas, to the softwood Trump lumber uh, dispute coming back up from the 90s, like a zombie issue, to comments about how Canada were smooth operators, to you know the specter of the destruction of NAFTA, to uh, the Bombardier. Um, hang on, hang losses. on. I mean, got, I mean, let's like, go like at these been... one by one. No, 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 no. That's that. You did a whole bunch of glossing over right there. That's not fair, Jen. Just hang on, because you know what? A lot of those things are verbal attacks that mean absolutely nothing. The, the the president would verbally attack wombats if they came up on Fox and Friends in the morning. I don't think what he actually says means a lot anymore. But but this is, I think, the first real opening shot in a potential trade war. Uh, the softwood lumber issue is not an issue specific to President Trump. There was a very real possibility after uh, negotiations fell apart under the Obama administration that Obama would have opposed the exact same tariffs on Canadian softwood lumber. So I don't know that there's anything particularly unique about Trump's approach to softwood lumber. The Bombardier-Boeing dispute is almost entirely one of shared blame between uh, the Trudeau and Trump administrations. Again, I don't know that we can say that that is a product of Trump's economic nationalism. But, you know, for the most part, uh, more intelligent finance guys like Gary Cohen and Steve Mnuchin have held the president back from really um, getting into uh, fistfights with Canada and in some cases Europe uh, on trade issues until here. And this is potentially catastrophic. I mean, the Trudeau government uh, and other you know, lobbying forces uh, from around the world have convinced Trump to step back on a couple of big issues. They failed here. And this is a real problem. This could potentially be um, the start of a very serious trade dispute. But I don't know that you can 100% fault Trudeau on this because he's actually succeeded thus far. And actually, I don't I don't really fault him at all. I mean, I, I think right now Canada's in a bad situation in the sense that we have no leverage against a rising nativist sentiment in the U.S. And there's, you know, short of sort of backroom lobbying, there's, there's just not much that Canada can do. And I don't 100 percent think that this is Justin Trudeau's uh, fault. And I don't think that it's fair at this point to say that, you know, his government has failed on trade. What I do think it's fair to point out is that for all the bluster that 
that Trump seems to uh, uh, directed toward Mexico prior to his election, it does seem like Canada is now in his crosshairs. And I don't think that we can be complacent about that. The second thing that I would point out is we're going into to the midterms. And one of the things that we can expect at those midterms is that the Republicans are going to lose seats in the Congress and, and potentially might lose seats in, in the Senate. And Trump has a vested interest in trying to rile up his base and get his base motivated ahead of that midterm cycle. So if I were Trump and I were a crazy racist person, I mean, one of my <laughs> things that I would do if. is is I would start hitting those trade partners and hitting all of those those sort of nativist notes that he succeeded with during his election cycle. And he, I, I would save up a lot of those shots for the next coming months ahead of that midterm election. So, you know, if he's going to go blow up NAFTA, if he's going to go start imposing tariffs, if he's going to do all of these things that sound really great to blue collar working class America that comprises his base, it's between now and November that I would expect him to be pulling out those shots. So I don't think that Trudeau is to blame for this. But I also think that, you know, if you think that the Canadian government's done such an awesome job on trade, I think it's a little bit premature to be saying that. Well, I mean, you know, we've done this rather quietly. Um, you know, a lot of the lobbying has been backroom, but a lot of it has been to Congress. So we actually um, can expect that a number of prominent Republicans, when they're campaigning uh, for the midterms, are actually going to have Canada's back because they've been convinced that steel tariffs could hurt automotive manufacturing jobs in their district. So I don't know that this is, um, you know, the last we're going to hear about this. Obviously, we're going to come back to this uh, as we get into, uh, you know, an economic cold war with our closest neighbor and our and supposedly best economic ally. ally. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Sounds yeah. great. Love being Canadian. Um, and I would just say, like, I'm going to reserve judgment on the, the Trudeau government's performance here until November 9th. So I finally got around to using FreshBooks. I managed to use this ridiculously easy cloud accounting software to collect all the money that Jesse Brown owed me. It was amazingly simple. I did it on my phone. I filed an invoice and Jesse Brown paid me surprisingly quickly. And I was surprised to learn that he was good for it. You can send grown-up invoices in just 30 seconds, set yourself up to get paid online and manage your expenses from their home app all things I will be doing in the near future to make sure that Candleland doesn't stiff me. To find out all the ways that FreshBooks will transform how you deal with your paperwork, go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section. All right, Jen, this week we're introducing a new segment I like to call Oppo Research, where we bring you the story behind the story underneath the story on Parliament Hill. And I'm not on Parliament Hill, so please feel free to take this one away. Well, Jen... You remember cigarettes, right? Vaguely. Well, it turns out that the people who make cigarettes are unhappy. Yeah, after decades of spending ludicrous amounts of money to muddy the waters on the health risks of smoking cigarettes, Big Tobacco is back to complain that they are the victims of some pretty unfair treatment. So at a press conference on Parliament Hill just a couple of weeks ago, a representative from Imperial Tobacco, one of Canada's largest cigarette companies, decided to give a press conference to complain that he had been unfairly maligned by the government and specifically the health committee. Now, this didn't get a lot of coverage, not a lot of people really focused on this, but it was a really interesting little segment about exactly kind of how lobbying works on Parliament Hill. Now, you know, normally big business groups get to come together and write a couple letters, make a couple phone calls, buy a couple beers, and they'll get an invite to go talk about the bill that they desperately want to kill. In this circumstance, Imperial Tobacco wasn't invited, and they were pretty pissed off. 
for reasons that defy all claims to proper parliamentary review of legislation. The Health Committee has refused to hear our testimony. Before speaking about Bill S-5, I would like to point out on the irony of the Health Committee studying plain and standardized packaging of tobacco products, when just a few months ago, Liberal and NDP MPs on that committee supported a bill to legalize marijuana that specifically avoids plain and, sp and standardized packaging of those products. Yeah, so as you heard, Big Tobacco is pretty upset that they're getting the short end of the stick and kind of jealous that cannabis is getting everyone's love and affection. Now, Imperial Tobacco, the company that actually gave this press conference, was not invited to speak at a health committee hearing over plain tobacco packaging and feel like they're being targeted by the Trudeau government. Oh. Can I wear the black hat now? Can I be the person who defends the tobacco <laughs> industry? Do it. That sounds because that sounds like so much fun. Um, because I mean, what what Imperial Tobacco is saying here actually seems kind of legit. Like we do seem to have gotten all on board with this beautiful, wonderful, all healing, dancing, you know, Doritos from the sky cannabis. Doritos you know, without really, without really, maybe perfectly understanding what the long term health implications of, of of that might be, if we were to be in a society where we had a majority of the people smoking that on a regular basis. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not saying that I've done it before, because of course I'm raging uptight conservative. But I'm just saying, when it's legal, I would not be opposed to filming a, an episode of o o Oppo where I hotbox this closet and we'll just see what happens. Right? <laughs> that would be Let's kind of that. fun. You know, I mean, I mean, there, there, there's a fair point they're making here. You know, I don't think there's any dispute that tobacco consumption is on the decline, largely as a result of some of the health and public safety measures that have come into place. But at this point, the people who, you know, are choosing to continue to smoke tobacco are, are making that choice with the understanding of what the health implications of that choice are. And, and you know, okay, fair enough. That's your, it's your, it's your cancer, right? You know what? I'm going to just come out and say, I don't want to hear from tobacco companies anymore. I do not want them to lobby the federal government. Is it a point now where their only job is to frustrate uh, increased regulation on smoking. And I think we can all agree that there's nothing wrong with increased regulation on smoking. If you want to buy cigarettes, you can and you will. And you'll continue to be able to, whether that's a plain package or whether there's another dollar of excise tax. You know, that is up to the government to decide. I no longer think tobacco companies have any moral authority or any political capital to come into the nation's, uh, you know, seat of democracy and tell our lawmakers how they ought to be regulating smoking. I don't think the government should listen to them. I don't think they should be invited to the committee well, they don't hearing. have to but that's that's the beauty of lobbying that's that's why lobbying so awesome i think it's why lobbying is just such a great thing for democracy uh the federal government doesn't have to <laughs> but at the same time it's like i i you know the idea that that just because it's the tobacco tobacco industry and they're terrible and they kill lots of people and are you know morally corrupt yeah, evil in every way yeah doesn't necessarily yeah, mean they right. don't have a voice man it doesn't mean that they shouldn't have a say <laughs> Uh, leave big tobacco to alone. <laughs> leave big tobacco alone. They should have the ability to get on their soapbox if they want to, and we have the ability and right to ignore them. So, Justin, were you in the budget lockup this week? So exciting. I was not. I was coming back from Europe from a reporting trip, so I didn't get to make it into the budget lockup, which I so desperately enjoy. I also was not in the budget lockup, you know, being in Alberta, the wastelands lost and forgotten to the Ottawa political classes. And I was left to digest much of what came out of that budget through other people's reporting, unfortunately. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was this budget's apparent focus on gender issues, uh, particularly around the idea that it's a gender-based analysis of the budget, that all of the spending is going to be going to 
issues of interest and importance to women, $100 million for women's groups, $187 million to, uh, you know, address sexual harassment, $1.8 million to create a strategy to do something to make men and boys engage in the topic of gender equality, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. And it all sounds really good. But one of the things, you know, as a woman who has uh, recently bred, um, really bothered me about this budget is that it's one thing to put equity on the front of your budget and paint it purple and call it, you know, the women's budget. But if you're going to do that and you want to do that credibly, you have to have a cohesive, thoughtful, universal approach to childcare baked into that budget. What more do you want? The government already gives you checks every couple of months for all your kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, let me tell you how much those checks actually amount to. Like, for, I, I'm sorry to go full breeder on you here, Justin, but I think that <laughs> I think the people who don't have kids need to be a little bit more aware of the reality facing, you know, the people who are putting out the children who are going to continue to pay all of our health care and retirement costs into, into perpetuity are actually facing. You know how much that check actually amounts to? How much? $146 a fucking month. Do you know how much my child care costs for four days a week, Justin? It's $1,400 a month. Okay. You know, but, but no, no, I agree with you. We need to do a better job of making having kids affordable. But I am not convinced that sending out checks for how many kids you have and how old they are is, is really the most effective totally way. Totally agreed. It's, it's probably one of the most inefficient ways of addressing. Oh, God, we agree. Oh, God, yes. No, we absolutely 100% agree here. And I'm going to apologize to all of my conservative fans because I'm about to go full socialist. No. Uh, so the <laughs> here we go. The government is predicted to spend $22.4 billion fucking dollars literally handing out unfettered checks to breeders like me that don't amount actually amount to the amount of money that we need to put our kids in childcare. It's actually a, a horribly inefficient way of trying to get women back in the workforce because, to be honest with you, $22.4 billion would go a hell of a lot further if you just create a universal childcare program. Period. Yeah. Done. I mean, like, you, you would probably spend like half as much money. You would save billions of dollars per year doing that as opposed to just handing women like me unfettered checks. Just handing us money. And this is what's so pernicious about this particular program, too, because it's just vote buying. That's all it is. It's literally 100%. throwing candy at potential voters in the hopes that they will continue to support their government while completely glossing over the fundamental structural problems that exist for women who are increasingly trying to enter the workforce. By the way, when I say like my personal financial situation here, I have it good. Like I'm going to put that out yeah. right here. I ha I'm extremely lucky. Lucky. I you know I'm a married woman. I can pay my rent. I'm okay. But sure. you know, in Toronto, do you know what the cost of fucking childcare for an infant in Toronto is? It's seventeen hundred dollars a month. Like, you know, like yeah. in Calgary, the median cost for childcare for an infant is like twelve hundred dollars a month. But I mean, when you're looking for childcare, this is the thing that actually really got to me is that, you know, if you can afford good quality childcare, like I am lucky enough to be able to do. Yeah, sure, that potential's there. If you're in a city where there aren't obscenely long wait lists, you know, I've got very good friends in Toronto who after two years can't even find childcare, much less be able to afford it. The other problem here is if you don't have access to the money and if you don't have cash, can you find cheaper childcare? Yeah, of course you can, but you're going to find that cheaper childcare in sort of unregulated day homes. I can't tell you, Justin, some of the places that I visited when I was looking for childcare for my kid broke my heart. They were nightmares. They were just like pens set up in basements underneath giant piles of clothes. I think we have to get listen to a message from our sponsor now. Discount Larry's Baby Orphanage. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, 
if I can just take us a step back from full-on communism, you know, I don't know that necessarily subsidizing the cost of, of, of uh, childcare is the only answer. I think it's an option. No, it's we not. should look at it. Um, you know, the NDP's proposal on that from the last election was actually woefully inadequate. It only would have created uh, a, a, a tiny fraction of the spaces we actually need and it would have been wildly expensive. You know, I think if you want to talk about conservative solutions for this, let's talk about maybe getting rid of these procreation awards and just look at targeted tax cuts for, you know, middle-aged families, uh, middle-income well, I mean, families. We do, we, do, we do have tax cuts and we do have tax cuts for, for, for child yeah, care. Yeah, more tax so cuts. I think that's no, no, fair, but I think... No, 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 not but, tax but, breaks, look, tax not tax cuts, rebates, tax actual tax cuts. Yeah, tax cuts, rebates, I mean, I don't actually think that that's really good. I mean, that just takes us further down the path towards sort of boutique-style tax cuts. No, that no, 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 no boutique. People. No, no, actual tax cuts. Lowering the second and third income tax rates would actually just put leave more money in your pocket rather than having the government collect your money and then send it back to you. I don't actually think that that addresses the issue. I don't think it addresses the issue of access to childcare. I really don't. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm all for tax cuts in if general. If you have more money. But, but, you... but unless you're going to reduce my taxes by $1,400 a month, best of fucking luck. Look, if you want to talk about more conservative approaches to dealing with this issue, how about talking about tax incentives for companies that create childcare spaces inside their offices? Sure. You know what I mean? Like, or, 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 you know, maybe a means-based subsidy that gives people access specifically for childcare spaces on a monthly basis. So it's not just cash for nothing. It's like, okay, how, how much is your daycare bill? How much is your wage? You get a subsidy. I mean, the, the, actually, the city of Toronto does this, and the wait lists are so long that you're encouraged to get on it basically the second you get knocked up. Like, before you even know whether or not your your pregnancy is viable, you're on the fucking daycare wait list in Toronto. I mean, like, it's 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 nuts that a municipal government is having to step in to, to address this problem. So as I said, I mean, this just, I, I don't really, really want to get so deep in the rabbit hole here, but I'm saying, you know, as someone who has a kid and understands firsthand just how fucking brutal it is, um, don't come to me with a gender-based, put a bird on it, color it purple, women's budget, unless you're addressing the child care issue in a serious <laughs> way. And now we're from our sponsor, Crazy Larry's Baby Barn. If you haven't noticed over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of stories about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and India, of all places. Of course, the Prime Minister was there for more than a week. He was apparently snubbed by Prime Minister Modi. He put on a lot of ridiculous clothing and danced around, and everyone thinks he's now a bit of a goof, even internationally. But obviously, the big story to come out of that trip was his inability to vet his guest lists. The Prime Minister's office allowed a guy named Jasper Atwal, who was and a convicted attempted assassin attend an official event with the prime minister. The fallout from this has been crazy. The PMO has tried to spin this away and say that this was all a plot by the Indian government. Atwal has said it was the PMO's fault. PMO said it was Atwal's fault. It's a whole total mess. And suddenly we have a lot of armchair Khalistani experts telling us a lot of stuff they don't actually know about Sikh extremism. This is obviously a really complicated issue. There's a generational divide. It's very, very interesting. And to be honest with you, I don't have the firmest grasp on it. So joining us now is journalist Arshiman. So for those of us who, who you know, haven't necessarily followed this sort of stuff, tell us, like, what is Khalistan? So you have to kind of go back to the partition of India uh, in 1947, in which w when the British were leaving, they set aside an area for Hindus, essentially, and an area for Muslims became India, and the latter became uh, West and East Pakistan, and eventually Bangladesh. However, since then, there has been inklings and, and a desire amongst some Sikhs for an independent homeland of their own in Punjab. 
and, and that's usually called college thought, that really came to a head in the late 70s and 80s when a, a militant movement came up in northern India that tried to push for an independent Khalistan through sort of violent insurrectionary means that failed. Um, however, you know, it ravaged uh, northern India and also led to um, wide-scale persecution of Sikhs in that part of the country. Can you give us a sense of just how violent that actually became, how ugly that actually got? It was one of the bloodiest sort of struggles in modern Indian history, much more so than, say, the conflict in Kashmir, which often gets more of the headlines. So tens of thousands of people were killed. Many were killed by Sikh insurrectionists, and many were killed at the hands of the uh, Indian state as well. And, And that violence continued well into the 90s, especially in the part of the Indian state. Some of the bloodiest events uh, took place in in 1984, 1985. Specifically, 1984, you had Operation Blue Star. A number of Sikh militants had taken up residency in the complex around the Golden Temple in Amritsar, the the holiest site in Sikhism. And the Indian army uh, eventually went in to try and root them out. Um, Hundreds and hundreds of civilians were killed, as well as uh, those militants. In response to that, you had the assassination of Indira Gandhi in October of 1984 by her own Sikh bodyguards. And that spurred uh, mass government-sponsored riots and killings in Delhi and the surrounding areas of thousands of Sikhs in the weeks after that. And then in 1985, of course, you have the Aryan bombing you know, the worst terrorist attack in Canadian history and the worst aviation terrorist attack before 9-11. But the violence kind of goes even far beyond that. You know, there there was killings by, say, Sikh militants of both innocent, you know, Hindu Muslim civilians, as well as, um, you know, more political and military targets. But there was also mass disappearances and uh, anonymized cremations of tens of thousands of Sikh youth by the Punjab State Police. So some of these kinds of atrocities from that time period are still being uncovered even today. So what is the the situation in northern India today between Sikh people and the Indian government? Is it still a tense, volatile situation? I mean, or has have things calmed down into a more peaceful state now? Compared to the 1980s, they have calmed down significantly. You don't see this kind of mass militant uprising anymore. You don't see this really um, large-scale paramilitary resistance. Instead, what you do see are more targeted assassinations that have been cropping up recently. So say in the last two years, you've had about nine um, right-wing Hindu and Christian leaders who have been assassinated, and the Indian and and Punjab police blame Sikh militants, who they believe are being funded and financed by uh, the uh, Pakistani intelligence service. Hmm. Um, You know, there's some evidence for that. uh, However, you know, to what extent is that the case is is really unclear. But compared to, you know, this really violent, large-scale kind of thing that was going on in the 80s and 90s, the situation's quite calm. Now, you, you said in your recent piece for CBC Opinion that um, the appeal of a violent approach toward an independent state seems to have been on the decline, that that most Sikh youth today are more interested in nonviolent measures in order to, to further that political goal. Why do you think that happened? 
I think there was a change in, in leadership, for one, amongst a lot of these institutions that organize themselves within the Sikh diaspora. I think the government steps to uh, ban Babur Khalsa and the International Sikh Youth Federation as terrorist groups. And so now those two organizations, which were the primary kind of methods of organizing violent Sikh extremism in Canada, are pretty much gone so, for instance, Jaspal Atwal was a member of the International Sikh Youth Federation when he tried to assassinate an Indian cabinet minister in 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think just the approach that's being taken by a lot of these younger Sikhs now is a kind of more, it's more reminiscent of, say, Black Lives Matter or Idle No More. It's this kind of human rights-oriented approach. A lot of these youth are also interested in kind of human rights issues in, in other countries as well. And I think they're using, you know, their identity as six, seeing some of the atrocities that took place in India and, and demanding accountability for that. And, and a subset of those folks are interested in separatism. You know, I think um, there's no data on this as far as I can tell, but if I had to venture a guess just anecdotally, I'd say there's a significant minority that are interested in, in the idea of Khalistan. Mm-hmm. But there's a much bigger sort of majority that are interested in some form of redress and truth for many of these atrocities that were committed by the Indian state for which people still have not been brought to justice. Hmm. The appeal of violence just seems to have gone away. And I think a lot of that's also because many are second generation, too. That kind of brings us to Jester Joe's blunder with Mr. Adwell. And Mm -hmm. just the question of how in the world that could have happened. Why was it that this individual was invited to be either a member of this delegation or to attend an event with the prime minister. You know, this is something that confounds me as well. Uh, in the years since his release from prison, Atwell seems to pop up at all kinds of political events. So he was at a BC Liberal fundraiser, I think this was back in 2010 and 2012, um, around that time. And that created a minor scandal for the party then as well. Hmm. I've heard that. So this um, isn't even the know, first the scandal end- involving Atwell specifically. Yeah, exactly. This has happened before, right? Wow. Um, and, and I hear that, you know, that he's well-connected to, to people in, in all political parties. I, I It's unclear even what he does for a living. A lot of the stories say he's a Surrey businessman. Um, there were reports that he worked at a, a, a Punjabi-language radio station, but that radio station then denied that. I don't quite understand what his appeal is. And outside of these stories, I've never really heard of the guy. Hmm. I do think there are important questions to ask why, say, Randeep Sarai invited him in the first place. I mean, obviously, there are only a limited number of, of seats on this kind of junket, and you'd imagine that they they would choose carefully who's going to come. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, bizarre unto itself. Then there is a question that's been raised a few times now of why was it that uh, Atwal was able to get a visa from the Indian government to attend? You know, Jagmeet Singh, for instance, can't get a visa to go to India because Mm -hmm. of his criticism of the Indian government. And so you would think that a man who had tried to assassinate an Indian minister you know, a few decades back might not be able to get in, might be denied a visa as well. This whole thing is just truly bizarre. But the, the whole visa thing is really interesting to me because even though it does seem to lend just an iota of credence to this idea that Atwal was brought in by these rogue Indian intelligence agents, which of course was the claim that was put forth by an anonymous source 
ostensibly to try and cover for the prime minister's office flub and getting inviting him in the first place. So, I mean, it seems to lend a little bit of credence to, to that, I guess, sort of. But at the same time, it still raises the question about why the why he was ever vetted or, or passed by the prime minister's office in the first place. Even if even if the Indian authorities did give him a, a visa to get in, that doesn't explain why he got in through the door of the actual event. Right. Like it's, it's all so bizarre to me. It's it's very strange. We have to also remember when it comes to Atwal, he was charged but never convicted of a severe beating of Ojal Assange as well, mm-hmm. uh, who became a you know premier of BC, uh, an NDP premier, and then went on to be a federal liberal minister of health. And so you think, you know, why are why are these people associating with this man? Why is he on this list? It's it's truly weird. But I, I do want to just mention one thing, which is that this trip would have gone bad for Trudeau if Atwal hadn't been part of it. This would have been a disaster from the beginning. Uh, it's clear from, from the press reports that were coming out in India before this incident and the sort of signal that the Indian government was sending that they are very distrustful of this government because they believe that all four six in the Trudeau cabinet are secret Khalistanis, hmm. um, which there's no evidence for, by the way. Why is Canada specifically targeted as being this hotbed of, of Sikh extremism? Because it was once a hotbed for Sikh extremism. In the 1980s, uh, you had a lot of people who were followers of, of Jarnail Singh Bindarawala that were uh, here. You had the International Sikh Youth Federation and Bubber Khalsa um, very active, especially in the lower mainland in BC. And, you know, you can't underestimate how big of a deal Air India was. I think sometimes we we don't really think about it as a Canadian, you know, attack. I think famously Brian Mulroney even called Rajiv Gandhi uh, after the attack to, to send his condolences to India, even though the vast majority of people killed were Canadians. But in India, that attack still has, uh, you know, significant kind of resonance. And I think the other reason why that belief that that Canada is still a hotbed for this kind of violent organizing exists is because the Indian press and uh, the Indian government can't really distinguish and, and, and make an effort to not distinguish between peaceful organizing and peaceful criticism of India with violence. They kind of see it all as a, an all-encompassing anti-India attitude. And there is certainly a lot of criticism of India that takes place here. And, and they, they see those kinds of, of criticisms as signs that maybe this is all going to happen again. Maybe there actually is just a secret cabal of people who are plotting this violent resistance from abroad. There doesn't seem to be much evidence of that, but you know that is the general take that they have. The fact that Atwell gets invited into this event... It's being played up very, very big here in the Canadian press. Of course, now questions about sort of the allegations that major Trudeau officials have put forward that the whole thing has been concocted as a weird conspiracy theory by the Indian government. All that sort of stuff is is now seems to be snowballing into a bigger and bigger issue for this government. Is that just our parochial perception of an international incident or is India also freaking out about this? You know, it's kind of hard to tell from over here. Uh, I have been getting a lot of, of Indian trolls attacking me on Twitter, accusing me of being Kalasani scum and, and whatnot. And you do seem to have uh, a lot of the Indian press also commenting on this. This is a big deal for a lot of Indians. And it's going to have, I think, pretty serious repercussions for the relationship between Canada and India. 
But what India wants to do is crack down on free speech and peaceful political organizing amongst Canadians. And I just don't see a way that any government could do that. Um, So no matter what happens here, I don't think the Indian state is going to be assuaged. And this is going to continue to be a point of tension um, for, for many years to come. Thanks for coming on, Rashid, and explaining this for us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so that was really helpful. I, I mean, this this kind of lays out a lot of the problems I'm currently having with our sort of, you know, terrifying fifth column uh, freakout about Sikh extremism. Yes, obviously, it was a real problem, and it was one that deserved a better investigation than when we actually got in the 80s and 90s. But to sort of freak out about it now... Honestly, I'm having a hard time with it. Obviously, it was a huge mistake that Atwal was invited to the prime minister's reception. But I don't know. Are we worried about the current state of Irish nationalists who might be in the country? Are we worried about Catalonian nationalists, Basque separatists? Like, I think we really do treat sick nationalism as more scary and foreign than other types of nationalist movements. All right, Jen, that was Oppo. I'm glad you learned something. I learned that the tobacco industry is bad. Thanks, Justin. (laughs) You're welcome. We love hearing from you, so please send us an email. Tell us what you think we should be covering next week. Tell your friends, leave a review unless it's bad, and rate us on iTunes. The next episode of Oppo will be out in two weeks. Canada Land's original deep dive politics show, Commons, will be out next week. This episode was produced by Jesse Brown and Kevin Sexton for Canada Land Media. Music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is Jen Gerson is a socialist. Thank you.